All right. We're going to get a dumb childhood story then. That's fine. <laughs> Can't think of a cold open. Let me let me process some childhood trauma. No, this is just me being stupid and sheltered. Uh, so, while I was driving here, I got behind a car. And the license plate was WWJD now. And it awakened this memory in my brain. <laughs> so, there's a radio station here. That's W-Y-Y-D. And so for a lot of my younger years, I thought the W-W-J-D bracelets were W-Y-Y-D bracelets. (laughs) Okay, that's pretty funny. (laughs) And I was like, oh, so everyone's out here listening to the same radio station that I am. (laughs) (laughs) I was wrong. That was not what they were listening to. And I've forgotten that story for many years until tonight when I got behind that car. You know, sometimes just those moments remind us of what matters in life. Also, my great grandma had this thing on her mantle. It was like a, I don't even know how to describe it. It was like yarn on plastic canvas and it was done in a design to where if you only looked at the white parts, it was gibberish. But if you looked at the colored parts, it mm-hmm. said Jesus and like my four-year-old, five-year-old brain just couldn't figure out how it said Jesus for the longest time. And then one day I finally saw it and I was like, oh, I'm dumb. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Also, fair warning, you're probably going to get a dog bark here and there. We are watching a dog right now and he's so cute. He's very cute. He's a black lab named Hoobie. He's my boss's dog. He's very cute. And I love him. He's a part of the family already. But Rhodey has short man complex, meaning he doesn't like that there's a dog that's male and taller than him. No, he does not. <laughs> he he is not a fan of it, especially when it comes to like he has there's a toy he may want to play with. All of a sudden, Rhodey's interested in that toy. That's his toy. That's his toy. How dare. He hasn't touched it in six months, but it's his toy now. <laughs> so anyway, that's just a fair warning. It's like when you invite a toddler into another toddler's home. And they're like playing with the toys and the, the kid who lives there is like, that's my favorite toy. And their mom's like, you haven't touched that in two years. This is some adults I know in my life. <laughs> it brings up some recent conversations I've had with some adults uh. that I'm not going to go into. But yeah, sometimes we get very pr- possessive of things that actually don't matter because we don't like that person. Yes, that's that's Rody right now. Yes, that's All that to say. This has been a very rambling opening of the show. Uh... I think that you go first on your episodes, Don't I? right? No, you go no, first. No, I go first. It's been a while since we recorded, y'all. It has been. Even though it's only been a month. It's been a long time. No, we, we recorded early. Ah, that's why it feels... That's why. That's why. Anyway, you might cut that out. I'm Leah. I'm Bethann. And this is She Will Rock You. Where are they getting a dub in a CBS executive meeting? No. Bitch, don't touch my thermostat. <laughs> the ghost be like, hold up, before I haunt you, let me turn down the thermostat. <laughs> this is bad. We're on page one, guys. <laughs> this is She Will Rock You. We have no business. We have so much to record tonight. We do. And I'm not saying it's because of one person, but... That person's not me. It's the person I'm covering for having such an insane career. If Wikipedia can boil things down to a they point. They did not. I'm just saying. This is the longest Wikipedia page I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. <laughs> that's okay. But that's that's a story for next episode. Yeah. Well, we'll cover it then. Okay. I'm going to be absolutely honest with you. 
I have a lot of mixed feelings about this artist. I mean, there's a lot. I, I will praise yours because there's a lot of genius there and a lot of boldness in her. And then some of it's not so good. So there's just this dichotomy in Nina Simone. Like I said, one side is this ferocious civil rights activist and bringing this bold and pungent lyrics to the forefront. And on the other side is someone struggling with dangerous form of mental health. That's very negative effects on her and those around her. But anyway, humans are complex. And as you know, on the show, we highlight the good, we highlight the bad, and we learn from both in the process. Um, I'm also not going to cover her albums like at all because she has 40 albums. Good God. Um, from 1958 to 1974. How? She just never stops. I think a lot of them, though, are live recordings. Okay. So I'm just instead going to highlight some of her songs because I think her lyrics is where she shines the most, I mean, especially because some of them are just really important in like shaping American history, too. Um as I do on my episodes, because I can't seem to get away from it. Um, there's some trigger warnings. It'd be like that. It do be like that. Um, there's some talk about abuse, suicide, and sexual assault. Um, I also want to give a shout out to What Happened Miss Simone, which is a documentary on Netflix. Um, a good chunk of this research has a lot from there. So thank you. I love when Netflix have has a good banging mm-hmm. documentary that, that brings it. So I don't have to go to YouTube. <laughs> You never know what you're going to get. Let me tell you, sometimes research, there's a nice, well-formed, credible documentary. And then it's sometimes it's a 1980s home video. It's a crispy deep fried JPEG. Broken up into four pieces during the times when you only upload 10 minute videos on YouTube. And that's, you know, sometimes that's the gig. It'd be like that. That's the gig. Eunice Kathleen Wayman was born in Tryon, North Carolina. I see why she changed her name. Yes. It's a little wordy. Um, On February 21st, 1933, her dad was a barber and dry cleaner and entertainer. Her mom was a Methodist preacher. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting combination for sure. At age three, she started playing the piano and her family realized she has a talent for it. And then around like five or six, she would go with her mom to revivals and play music at the service. So like, that's just wild to imagine just having a five-year-old just jamming just banging out a hymn banging out a uh, literally i can't think of a hymn and i've spent how many years (laughs) how great they are there you go how great thou art just banging it out but come thou fount (laughs) playing it um anyway at age seven her church did a recital where she played the piano and two white women were in the audience and saw her and decided to, on the spot, like give her lessons. One of those teachers was an older woman named Mrs. Masonvich. So this was 1940s. And what I love about these ladies is they were crossing like racial barriers, both figuratively and literally, mm-hmm. because this is a pretty segregated area, as most places in the South were. Um, but they just recognized talent. And they're like, yeah, we're going to just go ahead and help that talent. So I think that's really cool. Uh, Mrs. Masonovich saw potential for a classical pianist and started training her at a young age on Bach, Beethoven, Debussy, 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 and (laughs) the side eye, the side eye I just received. 
just staring at like <laughs> off into the distance like I'm on the office. <laughs> Y'all hearing this shit? <laughs> oh, you know I can't resist it. And Brahms, and she would play six to seven hours a day, which is kind of insane because most professional musicians are taught for four to five. Mm-hmm. So she was going above and beyond it. So Nina said her goal with music wasn't to be a blues or jazz singer, which is the direction she went, but to be the first black professional classical pianist. Hmm. Um, black, I'm sorry, first black female mm. professional classical pianist in America. Throughout her childhood, Nina was very isolated from both the white community and the black community in Tryon, North Carolina. The white community, I mean, considering it's the South in 1940s, um, so a large majority of them were losers for being <laughs> racist. That's just the rules mm. of the game. Um, but for the black community, she couldn't fully relate because she was so isolated playing six to seven hours of piano a day. Mm. And so she didn't really have chance to develop relationships with anyone. And as she continued to progress and got older, you kind of notice this as a thread line throughout her life. But we'll get there. So right around like, I want to say the age of like 10, uh, Mrs. Masinovich set up a Eunice Wayman fund to help her further her education, which is really cool. And they raised money through recitals. Um, at one of those recitals, when she was 12, she was performing and her parents who were in the front row were made to go to the back for mm. a white couple. So Nina saw this and refused to play until her parents were put back in the front. As she should. As she should. So after raising a sizable amount, she first studied at Allen High School for Girls in Asheville. And then after graduation, she went to Juilliard for a year and a half to study to help her prepare to apply for the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. So I would argue that she's good enough to get in if she's studying at fucking Juilliard. Yeah. But, and even her family, moved to Philadelphia preparing for her to get accepted. But the school turned her down. And Nina said it was about six months before she realized that it was because she was black. Test, test, test. Melomaniac's record collection. And I can just read what Ruth wrote me if you want me to. Okay. I have not read this. I have not read this through, so I'm just going to wing it. I just ate some uh, carrot cake Oreos, which are amazing, but very sticky. They're really good. Anyway. I need to mute Facebook because I just got a message and it went dudding. Go away. All right. Take two. In the early morning hours of June 22nd, 2022, Tanner Morris stood in the street watching his dreams go up in smoke. Like, literally. Tanner owns Melomaniac Records and Cafe, which is a record store slash coffee shop in historic Mebane, North Carolina. This is a place that he's dreamed of owning for a decade and ran for two years, and the place was on fire. Thankfully, all of the extensive damage is repairable. It'll be a while, but this awesome and popular shop will once again serve coffee and be a place where artists of all kinds can hang out and collaborate. Everything can be replaced. Tanner's friends, family, and loyal customers have rallied around him. Well, that is everything except 
the record albums. Tanner had a whole room full of album racks stocked with old albums for sale. Johnny Cash, Elvis, Collectible Aerosmith, ACDC, even his grandparents' quartet album that was recorded over 40 years ago. That one wasn't for sale. But all the albums are lost. What the fire didn't get, the water did. And what the water didn't get, the heat warped. So all that hunting, all those times his heart jumped when he found Tom Petty or Bob Dylan in some dusty old antique store attic, were all gone. So we're asking for your help in replacing the album collection at Melomaniac ahead of the reopening later this year. If you're able to donate record collections, they'll take anything that you have. They're also buying collections of rock, pop, jazz, Christmas, children's, popular, classic country, collectible albums, signed albums, etc. So if you're in the Lynchburg, Virginia area or the Mebane, North Carolina area, they'd love to see what you've got. Tanner and his buying team can buy and collect donations in both areas. Just email mellomaniacruth at gmail.com. That's M-E-L-O. M-A-N-I-A-C-R-U-T-H and or records at gmail.com. Okay, this is the third time I've had to stop our video, video, our audio. So I told you there's a dog named Toby. That's not the only thing we're having to deal with in the Tarpley household today. But um, Miss Mia Tarpley ripped her little poor paw pad but because she kept licking it, someone got coned, the cone of shame. And um, yeah, while I've been recording, she's been bonking into the door. She knocked a seltzer off the, the table. She uh, keeps hitting it on the floor. So she almost took my pinky finger off. It's yeah, been good. she's she's on a she's the martini glass here is on a spiteful roll. Conehead. Conehead, the salad bowl, if you will. I've been here five minutes and given her like eight nicknames already. Yes. If, if you're wondering why I call her salad bowls, because the first night she slept in our bed with it on, I woke up in the middle of the <laughs> night and I felt it. I was like, who put a salad bowl in our bed? <laughs> was the only thing that came to mind. So I'm just apologizing in advance profusely because this is a shit show on the editing side. We and can't keep pausing this yeah, all night. It's just going to have to go. And if you hear some bonks, if you hear some whining, chomps, sorry um so that really affected her understandably and she did get to train with a professor um from curtis afterwards but like it's not the same it's not the same one and they didn't let her reapply because they have a rule that they don't allow students over 21 which is that's stupid dumb so dumb apparently the people who only have talent are below 21 yes we're all we have no talent yes this, fuck those 30 year olds sitting on the couch right now we are but dried husks of our former selves yes <laughs> <laughs> so after her fund ran out she realized she had to go to work so her first job was a photographer assistant and an accompanist for a artist um but to fund her private lesson she went and became a cocktail pianist for like a random bar in atlantic city now the owner of that bar not only said she had to play a piano, but she had to sing as well. So, like, guess who doesn't have lyrics? Classical music. Mm. Except for Handel's a Messiah, but that gets old. And you can't do that yourself. You can't do that. There's a lot of parts. Trust me. A lot of parts to that piece. Um, so she began to play what her family would dub the devil's music. <laughs> And she changed her name so her mom wouldn't find out. That's amazing. Which is completely something I would do. That's amazing. So And so she changed it up to Nina 
um, because her boyfriend used to call her Nina at the time. And then Simone for French actress Simone Signoret. Signoret, probably. That was a struggle. Butchering it. Oh, that's right. This whole this whole night is a struggle. <laughs> so just got my mic cord hung up on the uh, ottoman. You're good. So after playing at the one bar, she starts playing at different ones and some small clubs. And once again, <coughs> it was another moment in her life where she's lonely because she's playing at random bars from 12 a.m. to 7 a.m. Ew. That's the schedule. You can't reach the ear. We can't reach the ear. She doesn't know that. (laughs) Anyway, let me tell you, Audacy is not going to (laughs) be putting this episode up. No sir. You should put a compilation at the end of. No write up on this one. I think it's Odyssey. Odacy. A U D A C Y. It's Odyssey. <laughs> no, Odyssey is O D Y S S E Y. No, that's pronounced Odyssey because it's like audio. I don't like it. Odyssey. 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 <laughs> yeah. God. Anyway, so however, because her singing was now included into her act, she was able to form a very unique sound. So what's really cool about Nina Simone and her technique. Um, is that one, she's pulling a lot of classical like hand motions, if you will, like different patterns that you would put on the piano. And she's incorporating jazz into it, mm. which usually the jazz and classical world, very opposite, mm-hmm. polar end opposites. And, and her voice has this blues soul sound. In fact, she's called the High Priestess of Soul later on. That's so a cool name. It's a very cool name. But anyway, it's wild to me that she wasn't like planning on singing as part of her career because she has a very good voice. And it's one of those voices you hear and you instantly know who it is. Mm-hmm. Um, she also did something interesting to recruit people while like who wanted to play with her. Guitarist Al Shackman first met Nina at a restaurant gig. And when she arrived, she wouldn't talk to him or look at him. So that's a good way to start. Yep. And then she sat down on the piano and started to play. And Al just got with it. And started playing piano with her. Luckily, he had perfect pitch. So he was able to like solo. And then she switches keys a lot when she's playing. He's able to damn do it with her. It wasn't until after they were done playing that she finally looked at him. (laughs) (laughs) He passed the test. You passed the test. You now get the presence of my gaze. Um, But, you know, she did this because she wanted to see if people were going to put their soul Mm -hmm. into the music. In 1959, after performing a bit, she began to record. The first song she recorded was I Loved You, Porgy from Porgy and Bess. And she did it as a favor for a friend. Then she recorded about six more songs and put it on her debut album called Little Girl Blue. I Loved You, Porgy reached number two on the Billboard 20 and would be her only like Billboard like top two thing in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you're wondering, is this because America doesn't recognize the talent right at home? The answer is yes. <laughs> In yes. case you've learned nothing on this show. Yes, it is. Um, she did sadly um, sell her rights for $3,000 outright, and that made millions. Mm. So, yeah, someone ill-advised her, and mm. I'm very sad for her. Um, in 1960, she signed with Colpix Records, and I'm proud to say she learned from her mistakes and made them relinquish all creative control to her. 
Um, she also didn't care for recording companies throughout her life, especially in the beginning as she was only playing pop music to find to, I'm sorry, to fund her classical piano lessons. She just saw it as a means to play classical. Um, but she starts starting to pick up by growing in popularity. Um, especially I Love You Porgy really started putting her on the scene. In 1961, she married Andrew Stroud, who was a New York police uh, sergeant. But then once they got married, he became her manager. Nina, like, says it was the best manager she ever had in her life. Um, nine months later, they had a daughter named Lisa, who we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but Nina said for the first three hours after Lisa was born was most peaceful moments in her life. Mm. Much needed respite for her. And I think as you hear the rest of her life, that's going to really like hit more, if you will. Um, also, just note, we don't like Andrew. Mm. Just go ahead and prepare for that now. We'll talk about him a little bit later on. Um, now, going back to Nina's original vision of being the first black female pianist, part of that dream was to play in Carnegie Hall. And she finally did get the opportunity, but no New York promoter would touch it. So the Simone family funded it themselves. Hell yeah. Um, she was thrilled to play, but le- in a letter she wrote to her family, she said, quote, this is where you wanted me to play, but I was supposed to be playing Bach. Ooh. Yeah. So even though she made it and she got where like every musician aspired to be pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, there was still this tinge of disappointment for her and that would sadly follow her throughout her life. After that first Carnegie Hall performance, her career just like skyrockets. Um, it's like internationally she's getting picked up. It, I don't know what it is about performing at Carnegie Hall worldwide, but all of a sudden it's like the Albert Music Hall. Mm-hmm. Either that one or Carnegie, like people pay attention. So, like, she's showing up in UK TV. She's on a Playboy program from the 50s. Which, by the way, I went on a rabbit hole with Playboy. Did you know that they used to publish, like, science fiction novels in parts? Yes, I I did know that. I did not know this. So, literally, because you know how I like retro stuff. I wanted to see what 1950s they used to cover as far as topics because men weren't exciting then. And they would just be like here's some things about like here's some science fiction novelists here's J.R.R. Tolkien's new short story here's some random science things here's something about your car engine oh yeah in the middle centerfold here's nude woman there you go (laughs) goodbye (laughs) enjoy the boobs (laughs) enjoy the boobs but like the 50s program like threw me for a loop because it's all classy and it's just all these classy women with martinis and I'm like what the fuck is this I don't think it got what we know of Playboy until like the 70s? 70s, yeah, that's about right. 70s or 80s is when it went like, they're like, you know what, men, they only want naked boobs. Naked girls, naked girls. Naked, sex positions, naked, sex positions, <laughs> naked, sex positions. No words. Yeah, that's it. That's all it is. Um, anyway, very interesting. Um, but as we've seen on this podcast, whenever someone gets big real quick, what happens nothing great nothing great happens especially if you didn't prepare for it to happen um and before i talk about this segment i just want to make a really important note because i'm afraid this is going to get across and we need to like squash this we are not going to accept like the angry black woman stereotype as we discuss this 
because yes, she is going to have some anger and rage, but it is directly linked to a mental health crisis. So I just want to establish that. That's not where we're coming from with this. Um, so as we already know, Nina feels really isolated in her life. Um, when Al Shackman said that he first met her, he could always tell that something was eating away at her mm-hmm. and he didn't know what it was. After Carnegie, she started getting to more like arguments with her bandmates. And um, if someone was like talking to the audience, she kind of would refuse to play. Um, in her eyes, she said in the classical world, people had respect to listen to music. And she's not wrong on that she one, honestly. N- not wrong. She wanted to teach people how to treat music. And she's, like I said, she's not wrong on it. Um, she would go through these bouts of depression about the industry, started becoming more irritable at her life situation. Um, she's also working so much, like without break. Like that Lady Gaga, no sleep, bus, show, another club, another club, no sleep, bus. That's basically the vibes here. And she's also taking sleeping pills to sleep and pills to stay awake. Not a good combination. No, it's not. But unfortunately, you know, reason that she's working so much is because of um, Andrew. Andrew is making her work so much. And partly she says he was the best manager because he did like push her, but he probably pushed her a little bit too much. Um, but it would get to this point where like the combination of the pills, the overwork, her disappointment with not being a classical pianist, um, she would like yell and break things. I was just not in a good mental health space. Um, but let's revisit Andrew since we mentioned him. So Andrew, Simone describes Andrew later as the snake in her life <laughs> later down the road. Um, he would protect her from everyone except from himself. And she was pretty afraid of him as well. Like, like just to remind you how much of a piece of shit this guy is, like one time a fan gave her a note and she put it in her pocket and Andrew saw this and pulled her outside and was like hitting her and Ew. then took her to the back of a hotel like, sorry, took her back to the hotel room and pointed a gun at her head. What? And then tied her up and raped her. What? That's what this guy did. Fuck that guy. Yeah. We don't like men like that on this podcast. No. We don't like abusers on this podcast. Let it be known. But anyway, so that's happening in the midst of that. And that, I think, is getting funneled into, I'm not a, not to play armchair psychologist, but we can kind of see what's happening there. So Nina would go back to perform at Carnegie Hall again. This time it was for three days, which is kind of cool. Um, but something happens before that performance. A couple of tragic events happen. First, the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, where the four young girls, black girls died, and the deaths, deaths of Emmett Till and Medgar Evers. So her first time at Carnegie Hall, the songs were nice and jazzy. And yeah, some of the songs that she's going to play are jazzy. But it's the first time we see her unapologetic civil rights mission. And the bullet of that mission is Mississippi Goddamn. 
So I want to talk about this song at length. We usually don't do like deep dives into lyrics as much here, but I think it's going to be really important to pull the lyrics because she was taking racial trauma of that time and forcing it in the public eye. And no one was like doing that then. But I want to read the lyrics in full and keep in mind, she's singing this to a majority white audience. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to put in some like, because if you listen to, I think it's live at Carnegie Hall and listen to the original recording of Mississippi Goddamn, she has this little commentary. I'm going to include the commentary in it because it's really just so striking to listen to. So she starts by saying, this is called Mississippi Goddamn. And the audience starts laughing because that's just a funny title, Mm -hmm. so so to speak. And then she says... And I mean every word of it. And everyone kind of chuckles again. And then the, so the chorus of the song is Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi. Goddamn. That first verse, she keeps it really vague. She does. Can you see it? I'm sorry. Can't you see it? Can't you feel it? It's all in the air. I can't stand the pressure much longer. Somebody say a prayer. And then back into Alabama got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi. Goddamn. Then she says to the audience, this is a show tune, but the show hasn't been written for it yet. Everyone laughs. And this is when she just goes deep, super deep into it. Um, so I'll, I'll just, there's a lot to this. So I'm going to try to read it slow. Hound dogs on my trail, school children sitting in jail, black cat cross my path. I think every day is going to be my last. Lord have mercy on this land of mine. We all going to get it in due time. I don't belong here. I don't belong here. I even stopped believing in prayer. Don't tell me. I tell you, me and my people just about do. I've been there so I know. They keep saying go slow, but that's the trouble. Do it slow. Washing the windows, do it slow. Picking the cotton, do it slow. You're just plain rotten, do it show. You're too damn lazy, do it slow. The thinking's crazy, do it slow. Where am I going? What am I doing? I don't know, I don't know. Just try to do your best, stand up, be counted with all the rest, for everybody knows about Mississippi, goddamn. And then she turns to the audience and she says, I made you thought I was kidding. Dead silence. Oof. Yeah, but she continues. Picket lines, school boycotts. They try to say it's a communist plot. All I want is equality for my sister, my brother, my people, and me. Interesting that she says it's a communist plot because I've heard some other people say certain political things right mm. now are communist plots. But anyway, I'm moving on. Um, yes, you lied to me all these years. You told me to wash and clean my ears and talk real fine, just like a lady. And you'd stop calling me Sister Sadie. Oh, but this full country is full of lies. You're all going to die and die like flies. Shit. Yeah. I don't trust you anymore. You keep saying go slow. Go slow. But that's just a trouble. Do it slow. Desegregation. Do it slow. Mass participation. Do it slow. Reunification. Do it slow. Do things gradually. Do it slow. But bring more tragedy. Do it slow. Why don't you see it? Why don't you feel it? I don't know. I don't know. You don't have to live next to me. Just give me equality. Everybody knows about Mississippi. Everybody knows about Alabama. Everybody knows about Mississippi. Goddamn. 
it just punches you in the gut all these years later. And that song is about like during that time, people were saying, you know, don't move too fast because then you lose progress. And it's interesting because when I heard this song, not to go on a little soapbox, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, it's interesting since I've lived here in the South for, what is it, 12 years now? Um, I've had some people tell me we desegregated too fast. Is literally what they told me. Like there wasn't a plan in place, all this stuff. And it's just like, even then Nina saw it and she called out the bullshit mm-hmm. and it still applies to this future. Like where people are saying, we're going too fast, take it slow. It's what, just to let you know, not to put a history lesson in here, but it's what the forefathers and the early revivalist preachers used to say in this country to justify owning slaves. They truly believed that slavery was wrong, but they leave, they believed in order to build a society, you had to have slavery for economy mm-hmm. to build a strong economy. So just to let you know, slavery has been rooted in money. Mm-hmm. And the same people that say do it slow, want the reason they say do it slow is because they want to profit. There's no other way to say it. Your debts are paid because you don't pay for labor. That's right. Also on this, you know, when slavery ended and Reconstruction era started and black communities started to amass property, prosperity and resources, did it happen too fast for society to where white people would go in and just, you know, tear down black communities like Wilmington and Tulsa, Oklahoma and kill and lynch innocent men and women? Or when Jim Crow was put in place, is it too fast for to have everyone equal. And the problem has always been us. And I hope we realize that like just making excuses for this lifestyle and money and telling the black community, just wait your turn. You'll get there someday. It's just a bunch of bullshit. So good for Nina calling this out and rubbing our noses in this shit that we've made up because we couldn't deal with the evil that was in our hearts, which mm-hmm. is money because money is the root of all evil. Mm-hmm. That is actually true. That's part of the Bible. I agree with, but anyway, so now I've been on that soapbox. Um, in 2019, Mississippi Goddamn was selected by the Library of Congress for Preservation in the National Recording Registry for being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. I also want to read this fascinating quote and how it relates to the overturning of Roe v. Wade because, yes, we're also royally, royally pissed off about that. And I'm sorry, I'm going to get a little political because that is going to disproportionately affect women of color. And we are talking about a woman of color. Mm-hmm. So it is relevant. Um, a scholar, Shana Redman, acknowledged that the song, while written in the 1960s, captures the disgust and anger over the current decision. Quote, I think there's only a sense of continuity that we can take from its legacy, from its usage in this very moment. The structures to which Nina Simone was responding have continued to face us in the future and she hoped would be free and clear and beautiful. So the rage that she brought to the production of that song, the moment which she said, I'm either going to take up arms, I'm going to buy a gun or I'm going to write this song. That's actually a true face. She did say that is precisely where so many people see themselves fitting today, which I think is a really interesting quote. So anyway, unlike the first Carnegie Hall performance, um, the people who are not in that audience did not receive that as well, mainly the public eye. I'm sure they did not. But she said when she wrote that song, she wrote it, I believe, right after she saw the news about the 16th Street Baptist Church and wrote like 15 minutes. And it was just all rage that she could put out into it. And she said it was like, quote, 
like throwing 10 bullets back at them. Um, her daughter Lisa said that when she first sung that song, her voice broke and she never returned to her former octave. That's how much anger yeah. she had over the situ- situation. As can be predicted, most TV and radio shows would not play it because of, quote, cursing. Mm. Well, we're really afraid of the word damn. Can't put that on radio. Not in 1955. But, you know, just to bring over the point that it's only cursing, don't worry. Um, some radio stations sent back the 45s broken in two. You know, nothing like responding to a cursing album than breaking it in half. Yeah. It sure has nothing to do with racism. Um, but while that song did her image in the public eye, it did bring her to the forefront of the civil rights movement. She got to perform Mississippi Goddamn at the Selma to Montgomery Freedom Walk. Uh, now, of course, Andrew doesn't like the civil rights because he believes it's distracting her from her career. Um, but to Nina, the song matched what was in her soul and something she was told to keep quiet about her whole entire life. So as she continued to sing, she said it gave her a purpose to help her people. In an interview, Nina once said, quote, how can you be an artist and not reflect the times? Mm -hmm. I love that quote. During the civil rights movement, she would write and perform numerous of messages like these, like the song for women, which I love, especially the piano piece in it. It's so good. Um, that was used as a sample in Jay-Z's The Story of OJ, which is also a good song. Uh, to be young, gifted, and black was... So she was really good friends with Lorraine Hainsbury, who wrote Raisin and Son. Mm-hmm. And she was working on a playwright called To Be Young, Gifted, and Black. I don't think it ever got finished, but what she did, Nina, was like she took it and made it into a song. That's cool. Yeah. Um Strange Fruit, which was a Billie Holiday song. She would take that on as well. And then Blacklash Blues. There was numerous, numerous, numerous of songs. And then one of her biggest performance was at the Summer of Soul in Harlem. Um, you know, it came at a cost to be this in the forefront of civil rights um, because her record sales would plummet because of it. And she started booking less gigs because people didn't want to hear it. Because, like I said, we don't like to have our noses rubbed in the shit that we created. So while I appreciate the songs of protest that she's creating, because she wrote some really great lyrics that really put the rage in it. And sometimes you need that mm-hmm. in songwriting. Um, I th- the, the issue was that her rebel side of her never shut down. And what I mean by that is Nina Simone was always in that state of mind. And this is a little bit of a touchy subject, so bear with me. But because she had politics on her mind around the clock, while her cause was good and her time was important to push those movements forward, this also affected, just kind of, grinded her down after a while as anyone obsessed with politics that that can happen mm-hmm. while her cause was very important you need moments to rest mm-hmm. those moments did not exist in nina simone her daughter said quote when she was on stage she was nina simone but she was nina simone 24 7 and that was her problem mm. nina also said in a separate interview that sometimes she wished she wasn't nina simone 
and that her life would have been happier if she was like the other artists who steered away from preaching messages. So she knew that she picked up a real strong, you know, cross to bear and she wasn't happy. But I mean, I can't, I mean, I get both sides of it, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, so she also had this line of thinking in her civil rights viewpoint that she believed quote revolution sometimes takes bloodshed which I do not agree mm. with. So unfortunately for some of her civil rights activism, it was on a little bit on the side of violence. Like she was fully okay with violence happening to further civil rights. Like I said, I don't agree with that. And I think that's wrong no matter what any form of it is. But this all sets up uh, the mindset and mental health issues that would come her way because she is getting at this point, it's around 1968, getting really depressed and angry. And it was like on the flip of a switch. She felt herself dwindling down to nothing and would almost become violent towards people. She wrote in her journal once, quote, God, I could kill them all. Like she was writing things like that in her journal. Um, like I said, she also was on the side of like, hey, if violence is what gets it done, then, you know, whatever. But she said she would be a killer if she could. But her husband said she didn't know anything about guns. Let, let's keep it that way. That, that, I, I'll be honest. I don't like Andrew, but those, those are wise words. Those are wise words. Those are very wise words. Um, but all this is beginning to compound on her sanity. And she just starts this really sharp spiral. Um, she once toured with Bill Cosby. And she had this nervous breakdown in her dressing room where she was putting shoe polish in her hair and speaking gibberish. And Andy, Andrew, had to escort her onto the stage to play. Like, I've seen the clip of it. She is just not there. Damn. And here's the thing. She's not taking drugs to do that. Yeah. It's literally just her mind breaking. And then, of course, with that, she became suicidal at that point in her life. And she was just ready to go at any point. So one day, instead of committing suicide, she leaves Andrew, which is a better solution, Mm. um, and started moving around the world and recording. So she first went to Barbados. She had an affair with the prime minister, which is interesting, and then came back to the States for a little bit, found out she owed taxes and left again. Yeah. Yeah. Be like that sometimes. Um, then she went to Liberia and brought Lisa to Liberia. And for a year, she lived with a random family while her mom was traveling. And then her mom bought a house on the beach. She just, wait, she just ditched her daughter with a random family? Yeah. It's great parenting. Yeah. Um, Lisa also says this is when her mom just, this is when her mom clearly became a different person she left her kid with strangers yeah she said lisa said she went from being a comfort and i'm telling you she loved being a mom when you were watching this documentary she just kept talking in those early years how much she loved her daughter um so she went from being a comfort to the monster in my life and her mom began abusing her in public and hitting her and beating her up and it got to the point where like lisa said if she um started to cry like Nina almost wanted that and like like oh yeah cry like kind of things like taking it out in like a really 
cynical, just a really nasty way. Um, and it got so bad that Lisa also thought about committing suicide. Damn. But at 14, she'd go back to the States and live with her dad in New York and been there ever since. She's also what became a Broadway singer was in Rent. Wow. Lion King. Bunch of productions, which cool. is pretty cool. So when Nina was in Africa, she no longer wanted to sing and play piano. She said she hated piano then. And after realizing she needed money, she moves on to Switzerland to host some concerts. But her shows are completely different than they were in the States. Um, her personality has gotten to the point that if she sees someone like stand up to use a restroom sign, she will stop the show and tell him to sit down. Oh shit. Like there's actually a clip of it where she literally is beginning to play and she sa- goes, says this little girl, she says, little girl, sit down, sit down like that. Um, she also is like, if a show isn't going her way, she just walks off stage. Um, but in the late seventies and eighties, you know, she's not playing the shows she used to. She's playing these really small jazz clubs around Europe and Africa. And she kind of floats between Liberia, Paris, London, Amsterdam, and Switzerland. Um, Sometimes she does like the performance of a lifetime. Other times she only plays for like 15 minutes (laughs) because she's too drunk or she's done with the crowd. Um, as far as for her set list, by the time the 80s come around, she rarely sings songs like Mississippi Goddamn or any other civil rights songs because Nina says in an interview, they're not relevant to the times. So she feels like she lost her entire discography, which is interesting because when she was in the 60s, late 60s, she stopped singing songs like I Love You Porgy yeah. and only sang civil rights songs, which I also think was going into that personality, that kind of manic that was a choice. side of her. Yeah. But now she's like, I don't have anything to sing. It almost feels like. Um, And this is, I think, um, the saddest part of her story. And I think it really, it just explains her frustrations. Like we can tell from now. She is not happy because she's not playing. She wasn't, she's not playing, she's not playing classical music. Yeah. And she tells a reporter, quote, I'm sorry I was not the first black woman pianist. I would have been a lot happier. I'm not very happy now. Aww. Yeah. Now, there was a point in her life where she, in the 80s, she was in Paris. And she, I believe, was homeless. Damn. Like, you look at a photo of her. And this is not me trying to be, like, discriminatory to the homeless. But... She has, she's wearing rags. Her hair is completely disheveled and she's walking around with a cart, you know, full of her, you know, belongings Mm -hmm. and a music producer finds her and is like, Hey, we're going to help you out. And now Shackman comes around they help her out and they get her an apartment in Holland and they get her a doctor and they get her medicine and medicine would be the thing that the key to getting her a happy life. But it came at a cost where it's this particular medicine that slows your motor skills. So she would not be able to play piano anymore. But she did get diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which I could have told you. Yeah. Um, Not that I'm armchair psychologist, but I could have told you. Um, But, um, 
she does get a lot better and her mood changes and she becomes, I would argue, a better person. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to the 2000s. Um, by this time, she has settled into a routine, plays a small club, releases an album here and there, so on. In 2000, she was awarded the Grammy Hall of Fame Award. She also received two honorary doctorates from Amherst College and Malcolm X College. I'm not sure of the direct date, but in the early 2000s, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she did die in April 21, 2003. But two days right before her death, she was awarded an honorary certificate from Curtis Institute, the one that denied her all those years ago. And in 2018, she was nominated into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So there's no easy way, in my opinion, to define her legacy. I, I think at first, super well intentioned. She's always been incredibly talented. But as things didn't go her way, this slow self-destruction just took out over her for decades. And make no mistake, she made some shitty bad decisions. I mean, she abused her daughter. And like I said, we don't like abusers on this no. show. We're not very tolerable of it. Um, But we can look at her at the same time at the cusp of the civil rights movement when she wrote Mississippi Goddamn and that what that brought into the battle, so to speak. Um, It's such an incredibly important song and is cited as one of the most important songs for for the civil rights movement. Uh, She believed that she was punished by the industry for her civil rights activism. And she's probably right. Probably right on that. But, you know, this part of her that always was, sorry to self-destruct, there is an element where she let this one dream she had stop her from being truly happy. She was only going to be happy if she became the first black woman classical pianist. And while that is a big, you know, that hurts, especially because racism cut it short, she never let herself be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And that's also a very big problem, but that just goes to show you how destructive mental health can be in someone's life. Mm -hmm. But I do want to praise her before we close this out on her brilliance on piano because she is an insanely talented piano player. I haven't talked enough about that, but if you go watch clips of her, it's just incredible what she can pull off while singing at the same time. Mind you, she's not just playing random chords here and there. She's playing, imagine playing a really tricky Beethoven piece with a lot of moving parts and then singing on top of it. No. It's insane. And you know, her boldness to write the songs and saying what she needed to be said. And ultimately she is this instrumental figure in the civil rights movement. We gotta thank her for that. And that's Nina Simone. Thanks for listening. Uh, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Good Pods. We've been getting a lot of love over on Good Pods recently, so keep it up. Mm-hmm. Special thanks to Death of Fawn for our intro riff. You can visit our website at sheorocky.com. There you'll find socials, our show notes, ways to contact us, and as always, you can buy our merch. And remember, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. <laughs>